chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page. And for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. The Costa Concordia. A pointless disaster in every way. The Costa Concordia was a Concordia-class cruise ship built in 2004 in Italy, and it went into operation in 2005 at a cost of 570 million US dollars. It was 490 meters long, that's 352 feet. It was 35 and a half meters or 116 feet wide, and was powered by six 12-cylinder diesel engines with a maximum speed of 43 kilometers per hour, 26 miles an hour. It had 1,500 cabins and came with a large fitness center, a gym, four pools, a sauna, solarium, and lots more. At the time of its launch, it was the largest cruise ship in Italy and one of the largest in Europe. On the 13th of January, 2013, the ship departed the port of Civita Vecchia, some 40 miles northwest of Rome at 7.18 p.m. local time. It had originated from Savona about a week previously, having stopped at Marseille, Barcelona, Palma, Cagliari, Palmero before Rome and was now on the homeward stretch back to Savona. At that point, 600 passengers had joined the cruise in Rome and it now had 3,206 passengers and 1,023 crew on board for a total of 4,229 individuals on board. Captain Francesco Schettino was a 51-year-old officer that had joined Costa as a safety officer in 2002. He was promoted to captain in 2006, and for the previous four months, he had been on his second tour of the Concordia. The ship's maitre d' Antonio Tivoli was a native of Giglio, and requested the captain do a salute, which is a nautical slang for a slow sail-by, intended to show off the ship to onlookers, from either another ship or from the mainland. With this in mind, upon departing, the captain instructed an officer to inform him when the ship was on approach to the island of Giglio, 45 miles to the northwest, as he headed off to have his dinner. In anticipation... Tavali was on the bridge when the, with the captain as they approached the island, and once the ship was within two miles of the coastline at 9.30pm, the captain took direct control of the ship in order to get it as close as possible to the island to get the maximum effect of the sail-by. At 9.45pm, while travelling at a speed of 16 knots, the Concordia struck rocks on the left-hand port side of the rear half of the ship and tore a 50-metre-long that's a 160-foot-long hull, in the hull, just below the waterline. At the moment of impact, the entire ship shuddered violently, and plates in the dining room slid off some of the tables. People lost their footing and fell to the ground. The ceiling tiles were dislodged and fell to the floor. The watertight doors in the hull was closed and sealed. However, the engine room flooded with water, and within six minutes, the generators and motors died, and rendered the ship essentially dead in the water. At 9.52pm, the chief engineer and electrical officer tried and failed to start the ship's emergency diesel generator. A minute later, a message was relayed to the passengers and the harbour master at Chavita Vecchia 
that the ship had suffered a blackout, but the situation was otherwise under control and there was no cause for panic. At 9.57pm, the captain placed the first of several calls to the Coaster Operations Centre and reported that a single hull compartment was flooded. However, the ship remained buoyant. In the next 30 minutes, the captain called back the Operations Centre as more information came to light that in fact a second compartment was also flooded. The reality he was not accepting was that there were originally three flooded compartments and within 45 minutes from impact, five compartments were known to be flooding in the hull. If any more than two had flooded, the ship would inevitably sink. So, rather like the Titanic, the compartments couldn't save such a heavily damaged ship from sinking. At 10.22pm, the captain contacted the port of Livorno's harbour master and requested a tug, stating that the ship had taken on water through an opening on the port side of the hull, choosing not to describe the collision. It wasn't until 10.42pm that the port authorities were told that the ship had experienced a collision, and the strangest part was that these calls had come from emergency services, prompted by frantic phone calls from relatives on board the Concordia that were clearly within mobile range. When the Coast Guard got in touch with the Concordia, they were told everything was under control. It was eight minutes after that, and the ship was already listing 20 degrees to port, that a general emergency was finally declared on board. The exact time is unclear, however, the most corroborated reports state the ship began to list badly to the starboard side at 10.58pm, with a tilt of more than 30 degrees and that was when it made contact with a rock shelf adjacent to the island. The order to abandon ship was finally given by the captain. Fortunately, the ship had come to rest near enough to the port that Coast Guard boats and helicopters quickly reached the ship and were able to rescue a large number of people because lifeboats could not be launched on the starboard side due to the steep angle of the ship. At 11.19pm, the captain abandoned the bridge, leaving the second master to coordinate the remaining evacuation. However, 13 minutes after that, he also abandoned the bridge. At 11.30pm, two Coast Guard helicopters arrived at the scene, expecting to find a large ship, but found a nearly half-submerged ship on its side. And at that point, there were still 300 passengers and many crew still aboard. A conversation over the radio was recorded at 12.42am, where a Coast Guard commander ordered the captain to return to his ship. He refused and went ashore. Interestingly, he then checked into a hotel. At 4.35am, the ship is now almost entirely horizontal and there are still a few hundred people trapped on board. A rope ladder was used down the side of, outside of the port side of the hull that was exposed to the air. People were able to climb down into it into a rescue dinghy. Rescue teams entered the ship on daybreak to look for more survivors. Some that had tried to escape by jumping overboard had drowned, or were critically injured by the impact with the water from such a great height. Others had been trapped inside in the lower decks and had drowned. The captain was arrested that same morning. Over the following days, several more people were rescued. However, in total, 32 people died. There is absolutely no doubt the incident was caused primarily by the captain's decisions. There was no malfunction of equipment. There was no mechanical failure. There were no other influences. There's also no doubt 
that the evacuation was delayed and hampered by the choices of the captain first and the crew second. So the question is, what exactly did the captain do that was so very wrong? And it comes back to impaired judgment and distraction. During the captain's dinner, a passenger claimed the captain and his dinner companion had consumed a decanter of red wine with their meal. However, no concrete evidence of this could be determined definitively after the incident. By the time the captain could have been definitively tested for alcohol in his bloodstream, it would have long passed through him. Not definitive, however, impaired judgment is quite possible, even if only marginally. The captain had ordered that the computer navigation and audible warning system be turned off on approach to the island, as he had done this move three, four times and knew the seabeds well. And that's a direct quote. Of course, the other times weren't that he had navigated those waters weren't actually at about 10 o'clock at night. In addition to this, the ship was sailing far too quickly. And when you're that close to the shoreline, it means that the momentum of the ship, if there were any navigational adjustments that needed to be made, there would be little or no time to make them. He was navigating by sight, not by instruments, and he had left his glasses in his cabin. That didn't help. Worst of all, he was talking on the phone at the time he was supposed to be navigating the ship. He was in fact speaking on the phone to a former ship's captain who he was said to have been trying to impress with the sail by. The problem, of course, with that was that the other captain wasn't on Giglio that night. He was on the mainland and nowhere near them. The captain began his turn by calculating the distance to a set of rocks near the harbour entrance and so failed to notice at that moment another rock which was much closer to the ship had a wash from the ocean forming on top of it. Once the ship neared that rock, the wash was clearly visible from the lights on shore from the town and he called for a hard turn to starboard. Unfortunately, his action swung the rear of the ship directly into the rock. Had he not turned at all, the momentum of the ship would have carried it out of harm's way. And hence an instinctive reaction, quick turn, was the incorrect reaction. But why was he so close to the rocks in the first place? He should not have been. Let's look at how the route was planned. The planned route the Concordia would take was originally prepared by the planning officer and approved by the captain. There were no significant navigational hazards along the originally planned route to Civitavecchia. There was a light to regular amount of traffic in the shipping lanes at that time, nothing excessive or out of the ordinary. The weather conditions consisted of a gentle breeze from the northeast and a relatively calm sea. Post-departure, a new route was set by the captain with a plan to do the sail past at a minimum distance of half a nautical mile from Giglio Island. The new route came close to a small group of partly and fully submerged rocks known as La Scole, with the rock closest to the shipping lane at a depth of approximately 7.3 metres. The Concordia had a draft of 8.2 metres when fully laden, the draft being the distance between the water level to the lowest point of the hull of the ship, which is of the hull, which is the keel in this case. There are three systems in place for keeping a ship on course. The paper charts. Now these navigational maps at that time were still their primary means of navigation. It seems crazy, but there's a lot of history. The INS, which is the integrated navigation system, and that overlaps the GPS position of the ship over digitized navigational charts. 
The INS on the Concordia was called NARCOS, Navigation and Command System, and it integrated a series of information from multiple sources, including a radar, echo depth sounders, gyroscopes, a compass, and an anemometer. The third system is called Track Pilot, and that's an automated steering system, and that uses data from the INS to navigate the ship within boundaries of error specified by the officer of the watch. The chart that was used to plan the modified course was a 1 to 100 scale, chart number 6, which planned a safe distance from a nominal representation of the Lascol rocks. The rocks, though, were barely visible at that scale on that chart and did not accurately depict the outermost rock's position. At the time of the incident, the charts loaded into the INS were unofficial electronic vector charts, or ENCs, and this was another reason why they were using the paper charts as their primary means of navigation. They had more detailed charts at a better scale that did show full details of Lascol rocks, but they were not referred to during the planning or the final navigation. Monitoring of the INS is the responsibility of the officer of the watch, and there were two, a senior and a junior. The senior officer of the watch was fixing their position on the paper charts as the priority as standing regulations required them to do that whilst monitoring the INS fell to the junior officer of the watch. When the captain took control of the ship's navigation as they approached the island, the junior officer of the watch had left their station at the INS to assist in translating for the helmsman due to a language barrier. Crews on cruise ships are often from a wide range of different countries around the world and it's very common to have a crew member unable to speak the primary language on board and hence needing translation. Now, whether that makes sense for a bridge crew that need to work together efficiently and pressure situations potentially is debatable. From that point until impact, however, the INS was no longer attended by the junior officer of the watch and with the audible alarms turned off, there was no warning. The safety contour line had been set at 10 metres from the furthermost rock's echo radar position, and that was used as a reference to drive the alarm. The problem was that the reference that had been set wasn't set accurately enough to trigger the alarm, and a lack of monitoring the INS overlay leading up to the collision anyway meant that no one was aware that they were as close as they were to the rocks. The captain, upon taking control, cut the safety margin from half a nautical mile to only a quarter of a nautical mile. Most likely, it's thought to be due to his perceived knowledge of the local waters. It's important to note that even at this distance, the rocks should have been avoided. The final problem was that the turn orders were provided in rudder orders rather than a controlled turning rate, and due to the high speed the ship was travelling at at the time, relying on sight simply wasn't good enough, and it was all over. The failure really began when the course was plotted. It was on the wrong scale drawing to have been of any use. You could argue that the INS maps should have been the best possible resolution, but since they had better resolution paper maps and they just chose not to use them, that's no real excuse. Abandoning your post to translate's no excuse either, since it was a conscious decision to disable the audible alarm, which is intended to alert you if you are away from your station. Changing the planned course with agreement from the company or local authorities is referred to as touristic navigation, 
And whilst it's not technically banned, the decision to do that for these purposes is intended to provide the best publicity for the company. I think it's fair to say that wasn't very good publicity. The problem was that a sale passed at night wasn't going to be as visible to the public as it would in the daytime, and for increased effect, it's normally done at slower speeds anyway, about five knots typically. Since the captain did none of these things, it was not considered to be an acceptable choice for touristic navigation. Irrespective of whether there'd been an incident, the captain would have likely been reprimanded by the company, even if it hadn't had this consequence. So the ship has run aground. Why couldn't they evacuate everybody? This isn't the Titanic. There are more than enough lifeboats to go around, and they are physically proximate to land. There is There are plenty of rescue lifeboats coming in from the nearby harbour. So what happened? First problem were the 600 additional passengers that had come on board in Rome. They hadn't been taken through an evacuation drill. All of the other passengers on board had already done that drill previously when they joined prior to Rome. Now, international regulations require that all passengers undergo a training drill within 24 hours of boarding. So technically... At that point, the Concordia was compliant with regulations. Given that the passengers were scheduled to undergo the training the following morning, but due to the late departure time, they were at risk that evening, the evening of the incident. It's a common problem with ships that take on and drop off passengers mid-route, and this led to confusion by many of the newly boarded passengers about what to do should an emergency situation arise. The biggest single problem where the lifeboats were launched too late. Lifeboats are designed to be launched up to an angle of 20 degrees maximum. Now, this had only became a problem when they finally called to abandon ship. Had they called that an hour earlier, not that long after the incident and once they realised that they had no power, all of the lifeboats could have been launched. Now, whilst we can't be completely certain that all of the people would have been saved with an earlier lifeboat launching there's a very good chance many more people would have been saved and wouldn't have attempted to jump and died in the process. The investigation was hampered as well by a faulty VDR, Voyage Data Recorder, which is the the ship equivalent of a black box in an aeroplane. And it should have held all of this information about different conversations and what the ship was doing and what was disabled and what wasn't. However, reports indicated that it may have been faulty for as much as two weeks prior to the incident, whilst others claim it was accidentally overwritten after the incident. Ultimately, though, we can't be sure of all of the details, but the audio that was captured both on the radio and via other means has provided plenty of detail to piece together what actually happened. Since 2011, maritime laws have required that highly detailed primary navigational charts are loaded into the INS and it should be used for primary navigation with paper charts as the backup, not the other way around. This is the 21st century after all. This is being more strictly enforced following the incident. On the 11th of February 2015, after a 19-month-long trial... Captain Chatino was found guilty of manslaughter, causing a shipwreck, abandoning passengers under his care, and providing false information to authorities. He was sentenced to 16 years and one month in prison, and was dubbed Captain Coward for abandoning ship before everyone else had gotten off first. The reason he got the sentence that he did 
was primarily due to the fact that he had delayed the evacuation for over an hour. In addition to these things, he was banned from public office for life and may not work as a ship's captain for five years. There have been two appeals to the sentence since it was handed down. The first on the 30th of May 2016 was upheld. The second is still underway. Until the appeal process is concluded, which could take several more years, Chitino has not set foot in prison. He's still free. The other bridge officers were never put on trial. Several of them made plea bargains early in the investigation, and the Indonesian helmsman disappeared and has never been located since the incident. The owner of the ship, Costa Crossier, avoided criminal charges by paying a million euro fine to the government for the incident. Human ego is a very dangerous thing. It gets the better of us all from time to time. A few drinks, trying to impress other people, a perceived knowledge of what he was of what he was doing. The captain's ego led him to make several key mistakes that ended up costing lives. The senior officer of the watch and the junior officer of the watch still have something to answer for, but at any time the captain could have corrected them. But his ego took over, his confidence of knowing the sea well overrode his better judgment. Having a hierarchical leadership structure works fine, provided the leader is of sound mind. But if they aren't, what happens then? I suppose they call that mutiny or questioning authority. But the truth is that no one is perfect and you need to be able to call them on it if they're going to take unnecessary risks or make bad decisions. Not only that, but after the incident, nobody in the command structure told the truth to the outside. It was the passengers, though they were the ones that raised the alarm to the authorities, not the crew. They lied to the passengers. They delayed their escape for no logical reason. And it illustrated that even today, incidents at this scale can still happen. They had all of the tools they needed, a perfectly good set of maps, working GPS, everything you could want, a happy, healthy, beautiful ship, and they still got it wrong. One man's ego and no one's willingness to challenge them and dozens died as a result. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can, like one of our backers, Chris Stone. He and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon, and you can find it at patreon.com slash johnchidgey or one word. If you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's very much appreciated. If you're also enjoying Causality, you may also enjoy Pragmatic and Analytical, other shows on the Engineered Network please check them out. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgey. Thanks for listening.